Hello. Bonjour. Bonjour. Ciao. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. Hello. Welcome to Fertility Insights, the Cooper Surgical Podcast. We're delighted you've joined us to learn more about fertility and the latest research from highly respected and experienced experts within the industry. My name is Dave Morrill, and I'm the Director of Clinical Support at Cooper Surgical. In this episode, I'm joined by Laura Rienzi and Professor Bill Ledger. Laura is the Scientific Director of General Life IVF Network and Adjunct Professor of Biotechnology in Assisted Reproduction at the University of Urbino in Italy. Bill is Head of Obstetrics and Gynaecology and leads a fertility research group at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. In addition, he works with the City Fertility Group of IVF centres. So I'm delighted to have two such renowned and accomplished guests to talk today about the laboratory and clinical aspects of vitrification, which is central to so many aspects of assisted reproduction treatments. Thinking um, again about the freeze-all strategies, there's, there's some data in the literature that vitrification is safe, but there's also some conflicting information that it might impact risks of preeclampsia, uh, macrosomia, and large for gestational age pregnancies. Um, how do you perceive the level of those risks and how would you inform patients about those risks if, if you're um, applying a freeze-all strategy? Sure. I think the first thing to say is that we do need more information on this before we can be firm in, in our understanding of how this works. Um, Abba Maheshwari from UK wrote a very nice paper on this a couple of years ago, but, but not much seems to have appeared since then that, that is, is giving us more clarity. And the way I read that was it, it may be that it's more down to the regime for the embryo transfer, that these macrosomic problems and the others you mentioned seem to emerge more when you have a hormonally controlled transfer cycle than a natural cycle or a gentle stim cycle. Um, one reason that we generally defer to natural cycle without using estrogen gestogen unless we have to is to try and avoid those problems. Um, so I'm not sure that it's the vitrification process per se that is creating these obstetric difficulties. Maybe it's the way we do things. Yeah, we have so many confounders, but it's very difficult to analyze the, uh, yeah, the, um, the neonatal outcomes. And, and on the other side, liver stage is associated with small for gestational age and very small for gestational age, and nobody's talking about that, which in my view may even be uh, more dramatic, I mean, more, more dangerous. So uh, what we know today is that if there is any, it's, it's, it may be more related to uh, the patient population because there is always a different patient population and, uh, and the regime for embryo transfer. There is a lot of debate on how to transfer the vitrified embryo on a, on a natural cycle or on a, on a modern cycle, and I think we have to clarify that before claiming that it's vitrification per se. And, and I do agree with you, Clara, that the, a, a baby which is on the larger side is likely to be healthier and do better than a baby who's on the small side of the norm. You know, the Barker hypothesis has been well shown probably to be true, that if you're born big, you have a long and healthier life than if you're born small. So if we have to choose one or the other, I think I would go for the larger babies than the smaller ones. 
It's, I, I was always thinking, why everybody is talking about large for gestational age when small is clearly worst? So yes. I think there is no clear evidence on one side and the other. But uh, then, if we have to conserve a patient, we should say that clear stage is associated with small for gestational age uh, as, as well. Yeah. The area that we're going to have to pay more attention to in the future is maternal health. As you point out, the pregnancies that we're now helping to come into being with IVF are in older women. So physiologically, they're less able to cope with a severe preeclampsia, for example, or gestational diabetes than someone who's in her early 20s. Their, you know, their, their system just can't manage so well. So we're going to have to be more careful as our, as our mothers become older, firstly, to assess pre-pregnancy and really optimize their health for women in their 40s and even 50s. And secondly, do our best to... To, to work with obstetricians to apply strategies in early pregnancy that can reduce these risks later on. And that's something I don't think we achieve as well as we ought to at the moment. Yeah, I completely agree. Today, nowadays, with egg donation program and advanced maternal age population in all eggs, we have more to focus on the pregnancy itself. I fully mm. agree with you. And uh, just thinking about um, freeze-all cycles, and you've mentioned egg donation, and I think we should also talk about um, oocyte uh, vitrification for fertility preservation. That's another uh, instance of, of freeze-all. And Bill, you mentioned that we could be more aggressive with the freeze-all cycles for standard treatment. If we're looking at fertility preservation, presumably that applies equally. But I'd like to get an idea from both of you how many uh, oocytes we're ideally aiming to vitrify when we are preserving fertility. Okay, well, I think this is a, a very different area, David, from what we've been talked about before. Firstly, these are patients that are high risk because some of them are very sick. And there are some, some difficult reports in the literature about, you know, adverse outcomes and even deaths of young people with cancer who are trying to freeze their eggs or embryos before they have their own, their, their own chemotherapy. You generally get one shot so the whole dynamic is changed from someone who can do repetitive cycles to freeze her eggs or her embryos, you know, in, in, a, in a social setting. And we can't afford to give the oncologists back a patient who has ovarian hyperstimulation if they want to begin chemotherapy in the next few days. So there's a very tight balance to be drawn between giving the lab as many eggs as we'd like to, which is very important for the fertility prospect patients, but also giving the oncologist a healthy person back who can enter chemotherapy at the lowest risk possible. So again, an antagonist control cycle with an agonist trigger seems to be the way forward. We, we do these cases for most of New South Wales State now, and we did over 150 last year, and you learn from experience how varied the ovarian response is. We don't find that the standard predictors of response like AMH and AFC are quite so useful in this population when they're sick. Even these young women with high AMH don't often respond well. Things go wrong in those cycles that you don't expect. So I think you need the whole team focusing very hard on managing them. And when you say, how many eggs do you want? As many as you can get safely, but really avoiding risk of OHSS. So we tend to wind back on the gonadotrophin dose somewhat compared with, for example, an egg donor who we can push harder. And is that different, uh, Bill, in the social egg freezing cases? Yeah, we have a lot of social egg freezing in Australia, um, for better or worse. And so we would push those patients harder because they're healthy. 
And again, it, it's, we have Medicare rebate for medical causes of infertility. So our patients who have fertility problems don't have to pay a great deal of money in Australia. The oncology patients pay even less, but social egg freezing is not covered by the government insurance scheme, so it's expensive. So the women really want to get to that target of somewhere between 12 and 20 eggs with, with one or two cycles maximum. And, you know, with agonist trigger, you're not going to put an embryo back, you're just freezing eggs. So we would push harder with that group. I, I fully agree, basically, on, on, on what Bill has said, really. Uh, we have exactly the same vision. It's really depending on, on which women you are treat, treating, if it is a medical or non-medical indication. Our idea is also in non-medical, I mean, in, in, in of course, in oncological patients, we do the best we can do uh, preserving and, and thinking first of all the health of a woman. Uh, in, in non-medical indication, we try uh, to do one max two, um, two cycles. Anyway, you can never guarantee that even with 28X, you will have a baby. So it's very important to make the counseling saying that this is an opportunity, but not a guarantee. Uh, according to COBO papers um, and also to our papers that we did with uh, egg donation, with 15 all sides, you have more than 50% up to 65, but it's never a guarantee. So we try to be between 12 and 20 uh, and, and claiming that the possibility will be about 50 to 60% and not claiming that if we do other free simulation, then it will be 100% because we know in IVF, but uh, even uh, in a young patient population, we don't have 100%, even after three cycles of IVF. So it's very important to, 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 to make the right message to the patient that are undergoing fertility preservation. And also to, to push them to think about conceiving naturally, not to, not to avoid conceiving naturally because there is this uh, guarantee <laughs> All these eggs in the so our counseling, I mean, is also related to the fact that this is just an additional opportunity, but they should not, uh, you know, postpone too much the idea to conceive naturally when the condition, the social and condition will be there. No, exactly right. So I just was going to say, yeah, I, I agree with it, and, and we have to be pessimistic, but the problem is that social media and the sources of information that our patients get. Is totally optimistic about frozen eggs. You know, we'll start your family when you're 45. And the, the, I don't think there's a realism in the world of social media about this at all. And people come to us the whole time expecting 100% guarantee almost. And of course, we can't give that. You know, when I do lesson, when I, I teach at the university to, to 22, 23 years old uh, girls, I never talk about fertility preservation. I always talk about the fact that we should think to plan our life having baby earlier as it is in t today. Fertility preservation, it's only, you know, uh, an additional possibility, but it should not be the first choice. We don't want to have uh, the next generation with mother, old mother and no grandfather because everything has been postponed too much. So clearly the mass media are not, going a good, are not doing a good job. The idea should be to really to push uh, young people uh, to plan their life a little bit differently, thinking that reproduction is not something that we can control for yes. our life. And, and please get that message across to the young men, Lara, because... Yeah, yeah they... you're right. I always, say, yeah. <laughs> I always say that also young men should be informed because most of the time 
the man is missing when uh, uh, women comes for fertility preservation. You are completely right. right. Sorry, I made a mistake. <laughs> we, we, we did a nice survey around Australia a couple of years ago, and the reproductive age men, a large, well, a fairly big majority believed that women remained well fertile till mid-40s at least. They just had no concept of the biology. The, the general message, I think, around fertility preservation is that we need to be careful how we counsel patients and we need to be particularly careful about managing expectations. And that's, a, that's an important point, I think, to, to end that section on. Thank you, Lara Rienzi and Bill Ledger. And thank you also to everyone who's tuned in to this episode of Fertility Insights. Please like, share, comment, and make sure to tune in to our next episode. Please note that speakers have received a fee from Cooper Surgical for participating in this podcast.